Hello, and welcome to the Dark Ages Podcast. This is episode 40, The Vandal War. I have teased it long enough. It's time for the armies of the Eastern Empire to strike out into the West. Their target for this one was North Africa. But while it can be seen as the beginning of a program of restoration and reconquest, Justinian's war against the Vandals had much more prosaic origins. Before starting on that, though, I have to make a quick correction to my narrative of the Nico riots last time. I, by mistake, conflated Hypatius, the nephew of Anastasius, with his two brothers. One of these, Probus, is the one who professed his innocence to Justinian and escaped retribution in the riot's aftermath. The crowd actually went to his house first, planning to twist his arm into taking the purple, and when they found him, wisely, not at home, they burned the place down. Anastasius's other two nephews, Pompeius and Hypatius, seem to have been willing participants in the proceedings after all, and so Hypatius's execution seems maybe a little less harsh. My bad on that one. Sometimes the names get too much even for me. The Nika riots had left Justinian with a prestige problem. He had won domestic peace by the brutal suppression of the uprising, but had to win back respect for his rule if he wanted to accomplish all of his plans. With the end of the war in the Persian theater, he also had a clutch of young, ambitious generals who needed something to do. The conventional interpretation of events used to be that Justinian was preparing for war in Africa before the Persian peace was concluded, and I hinted at that possibility last time myself. More contemporary historical opinion doubts whether that was the case. Circumstances arranged themselves to provide Justinian with both the opportunity and the justification for war, and if they hadn't worked out just the way they did, I'm not sure that war in Africa would have ever even occurred to the emperor. The roots of the conflict lay in the domestic politics of the Vandal Kingdom. We ended our checkup on the Vandal Kingdom with the death of King Thrasimund in 523 to be succeeded by Hilderic, the son of Hunneric, and the eldest surviving grandson of Gaiseris just as the Grey King would have wanted. It's very hard to describe the course of the Vandal War without simply paraphrasing Procopius's account page by page. Better writers than me have tried and failed. It's just that he is nearly the only source, and by far the most detailed and engaging source. I'll do my very best to bring in outside insights wherever possible. Let me now undermine that statement with my very next sentence. Procopius describes Hilderic as a gentle man, with an instinct towards peace. He delegated command of his military forces to his nephew, Hoemer, and cultivated a relationship with the emperors Justin and then with Justinian, who were both happy to keep Vandal piracy from disrupting the maritime trade. None of those traits endeared him to the Vandal nobility. According to Roman sources, the Vandal elites had allowed generations of rich living to soften them, but their own self-perception was still as a warrior people. To be a noble was to be a warrior, and an unwarlike king didn't sit well with men like that. Hilderic also favored the Catholic faith of his mother, Licinia Eudoxia, which helped smooth relations with the emperors, but did nothing to reassure the Vandal nobility. Likewise, a visit to Constantinople, after which Hilderic recalled a clutch of exiled Catholic bishops, also went down poorly. Hilderic wasn't necessarily a doormat. For reasons that aren't entirely clear, he became paranoid about Amalafrida, Thrasimund's widow, and Theodoric the Great's sister, and around 527 had her imprisoned. He accused her of having revolutionary designs, and also purged the Gothic troops that had accompanied her. Amalafrida later died in prison. Hilderic claimed that it had been natural causes, which the Ostrogoths didn't buy for a minute, and this was around the time that Theodoric died, and power passed nominally to his grandson Athalaric, 
with his mother as regent. The Ostrogoths then weren't internally in a position to do anything to avenge Amalafrida, and even if they were, Vandal naval strength made any serious invasion unfeasible for them. Cassiodorus sent a strongly worded letter to Hilderic, but couldn't muster any threat greater than, quote, We must leave you to the judgment of the Divine Majesty, which heard the blood of Abel crying from the ground. End quote. Hilderic did have some reason to be concerned about bad actors within his regime, and we don't know enough to say whether Amalafrida was a threat or not. One who definitely was a threat was the man who was next in line for the Vandal throne, Hilderic's cousin Gelimer. Under the terms of seniority, Gelimer would take over whenever Hilderic died, but as Procopius put it, quote, he was a cunning fellow and base at heart, end quote. Unwilling to wait for his inheritance, Gelimer orchestrated a coup. Hilderic was deposed and imprisoned along with his nephew and chief military commander Homer and the king's son Euagius, who was probably arrested for having too many vowels, and reversed Hilderic's tolerant stance toward the Catholic-slash-Orthodox Church in the territories. Arian supremacy was back. One of the points Gelimer had made to the Vandal nobility as he was canvassing for support was that Hilderic was far too cozy with Justin and Justinian. He went so far as to suggest that Hilderic was lining up an imperial takeover of Africa by the Empire, which had to be prevented at all costs. There's no evidence of such a plan, but Hilderic had been friendly with Justinian since before Justin had died, and Gelimer's coup did not go unnoticed in Constantinople. When news of the takeover reached him, Justinian responded with a letter of protest, quoted or paraphrased by Procopius. You are not acting in a holy manner, nor worthy of the will of Geyseric. Justinian appears to have been aware of the reverence in which the old king was held. Justinian suggested that Gelimer work out some kind of power-sharing deal with Hilderic. Hilderic was in his 60s, after all. Gelimer probably wouldn't have to wait long. For whatever reason, maybe he was worried that he was no spring chicken himself, and he wanted to enjoy power for as long as possible, Gelimer turned Justinian's emissaries away. He made his point even more firmly by blinding Homer and moving Gelimer and his son into harsher confinement. When this news reached Justinian, he was not among the campers that are happy. His return letter took on a tone of hurt reasonableness. We suppose that you would never go contrary to our advice when we wrote the former letter, but since it pleases you to take possession of the royal power in the manner in which you have, get out of it whatever heaven grants. But do send us Hilderic and Homer, who you have blinded, and his brother, to receive what comfort they can who have been robbed of kingdom and of sight. We shall not let the matter rest if you do not do this. The treaty with Geyseric will not stand as an obstacle for us, for it is not to make war upon him who has succeeded to the kingdom of Geyseric that we come, but to avenge Geyseric with all of our power. Justinian thus allowed Gelimer the option of transferring Hilderic to Constantinople, but in the very same letter set up his cause as Belli. He would be fighting to restore the lawful succession as laid down by the revered Geyseric. You notice there is no mention of saving the Roman population from heretical overlords, nor of reclaiming territory that was rightfully Roman. Just simple resolve to see the right thing was done. In the face of that resolve, it's not too surprising that Gelimer refused to release Hilderic to Roman custody. If he did, it was more than likely that the next time Hilderic appeared in Africa, it would be at the head of an army. In his reply to the emperor, Gelimer argued that it was Hilderic who had been plotting against the rightful succession, and that he had had the consent of the Vandal elites in removing him. He couldn't help throwing in a little bit of sass, too, according to Procopius. Again, quote, It is well for one to administer the kingly office which belongs to him, and not make the concerns of others his own. 
For you, meddling in others' affairs is not just, and if you break the treaty and come against us, we shall oppose you with all our power. Gallimer was probably counting on Justinian having too much on his plate already to deal with such relatively small potatoes. But the letter irritated Justinian, and he moved to make arrangements for those potatoes to be properly attended to. Most of Justinian's advisors either agreed with Gellimer that the Africa question was small potatoes and not worth pursuing, or believed it would be too expensive to undertake with a low chance of success. All of them were very aware of the disaster that had been Basiliscus's expedition against the Vandals in 468. The cost of that undertaking in blood and treasure had been monstrous, with nothing to show for the effort whatsoever. No one wanted to be the one to pour cold water on the emperor's idea, though, except for John the Cappadocian. He warned Justinian off the idea, citing cost, distance, and the potential consequences of failure. But a bishop, who Procopius does not name, took Justinian aside and told him of a dream he had had. In the dream, God told him to rebuke the emperor for being afraid to protect Christians of Africa from tyrants. If he did move against the Arians, God would be on Justinian's side. Well, that did it. Belisarius was told to make himself ready to lead an army to Africa and to begin to gather the men and supplies that would be required. The bishop's words seemed to be borne out by events. As preparations began, a revolt broke out in Tripolitania. Justinian sent a small force to support the revolt, and the territory freed itself from Gelimer's rule. Gelimer was unable to respond as another revolt simultaneously broke out in Sardinia, led by the man he had sent to govern the island. Sardinia being larger and economically more important, Gelimer was obliged to dispatch 5,000 men commanded by his brother Tsazan to put down the insurrection. The Sardinian uprising ended up being a bit of a mixed bag from the Roman point of view. Justinian offered to send soldiers to aid the effort, and did send a commander to prepare for their arrival. But the leader of the revolt fancied himself an independent king with no need of other war leaders. He would accept the fighting men, but not the commander, who he dismissed. Justinian wouldn't learn about that uh, for some time, and so set aside 400 men to send to Sardinia. The revolt ultimately didn't have time to go anywhere, but was vital in distracting a sizable portion of the Vandals' fighting strength. Belisarius seemed to have what Napoleon identified as the most important trait of a military commander, luck. The invasion force grew by the day, drawn from all over, both in and outside the empire. Procopius gives a detailed list of all the unit commanders, and I will not inflict that on you, there's already too many names in this episode. I will note that the army assembling at Constantinople included 10,000 foot soldiers and 5,000 cavalry, to be carried by an armada of 500 ships handled by 30,000 sailors. And those are just the transports. The fleet was escorted and protected by a squadron of another 92 warships, the fast and nimble Dromans, which I mentioned in the episode about the Battle of Cape Bon. These were single-decked rowing ships, so they could sail if needed, and they were built for speed. If we take Procopius's numbers at face value, this invasion was roughly half the size of Basilisk's this invasion was roughly half the size of Basiliscus's earlier attempt, about 47,000 altogether compared to the 100,000 Basiliscus supposedly led. Oddly, while modern historians have serious doubts about that 100,000, I haven't seen a lot of pushback against the numbers for Justinian's invasions, probably because Procopius was actually present and involved in the work, and so would have had a fairly realistic sense of the operation scale. Now seems like an excellent time to update our image of a Roman army. The heavy infantry legions of Julius Caesar had long ago been retired in favor of faster-moving armies with greater cavalry contingents. 
The Huns' invasions had forced further adaptations. In addition to just hiring Hun and other steppe mercenaries, Roman soldiers began to be trained in mounted archery. Procopius doesn't tell us what proportion of the Roman cavalry were mounted archers, but they were becoming increasingly common. He goes out of his way to assure his readers that the bowmen of Belisarius' army were not the low-power unit that they, or a Warcraft player, might imagine, and in the process gives us a nice description of the arms and armament of such figures. Quote, the bowmen of the present day go into battle wearing corslets and fitted out with greaves, which extend up to the knee. From the right side hang their arrows, from the other their sword. And there are some who have a spear also attached to them, and, at the shoulders, a sort of small shield without a grip, such as to cover the region of the face and neck. They are expert horsemen, and are able without difficulty to direct their bows to either side while riding at full speed, and to shoot an opponent whether in pursuit or in flight. They draw the bowstring along by the forehead about opposite the right ear, thereby charging the arrow with such an impetus as to kill whoever stands in the way, shield and corslet alike having no power to check its force. End quote. At the top of the pecking order were Belisarius's hand-picked elite cavalry, his bodyguard, or retinue is probably a better word. These are known as the Busolarii, and were recruited and paid for by the general personally. Belisarius was surrounded by somewhere between 1 and 2,000 of them. It's not clear whether the 5,000 cavalry included the Busolarii or not. These were not archers, but mounted shock troops, armed like the Vandals, with spear, shield, and sword, and by far the best armor of any of the Roman units, with chainmail all over, and the practical, though not terribly attractive, dome-shaped helmets that were pretty much ubiquitous around Europe. With their varied geographical origins and generally lower status, we can expect that the foot soldiers would have been a much more motley collection. The army set out from Constantinople in June of 533, and were gently wafted by light winds, taking nearly a week just across the Sea of Marmara. The fleet made its way in short hops down the Anatolian coast before crossing to Methone, at the very southern tip of what we call mainland Greece. Along the way, Procopius tells us of a potentially disastrous incident, where it turned out that, there, that the hardtack that had been prepared for the journey had not been properly baked, and several hundred men were made sick by it. This is after an incident involving improperly stored water. Procopius blamed the ever-economizing John of Cappadocia, who had commandeered the furnace of a bathhouse to bake the bread. Apparently, this would be cheaper than the usual ovens. I'm not sure I follow that reasoning, but I must resist the temptation to follow the white rabbit of late antique bread-making and move on. Amalaswintha, the daughter of King Theodoric the Great and Regent Queen of Italy, had a strong relationship with Constantinople, and diplomatic ground had been laid with her ahead of time. With her blessing, Belisarius's fleet landed in Sicily, at Catania initially before moving down to Syracuse. Rather endearingly, Procopius here inserts himself into the narrative. Upon arrival in Syracuse, our narrator unexpectedly met an old acquaintance whose domestic slave had just arrived back from Carthage. This man told Procopius about the departure of the Vandal army for Sardinia, and that no one among the Vandals was aware of the eastern fleet's approach. How that could possibly be true is a little bit of a riddle to me. Almost 600 ships, not moving at exactly what you would call lightning speed, and it goes completely unreported to the Vandal king? Passing over that, Procopius obviously brought these two to meet Belisarius and tell it all to him. He was also able to say that Gelimer was staying in a town in Byzacena, a four-day journey from any coast. If they moved quickly, the Romans could have more than enough time to set up a beachhead and organize themselves before the Vandals mustered a response. The initiative belonged to the Romans, and fortune favored Belisarius. 
So he shanghaied the slave as the fleet set sail. He was clearly a valuable source of intelligence, and Procopius was left to shout his apologies to his old friend from the ship's deck and promised to return the slave as soon as possible. Two days sailing and a stop at Malta brought them to the African coast. The fleet anchored off a promontory called Caput Vada, about halfway down the north-south section of Tunisia's coastline. This is where I plug the website, darkagespod.com, and the Instagram account, at darkagespod, because that's where I will put the maps. Caput Vada was about five days' travel from Carthage for a single traveler, but for an army of 15,000 it would take a bit longer. Some initial unpleasantness ensued when some foragers collected food from the locals, and it was, after all, the that was, after all, the job description of a forager, but these weren't usual times, and General Belisarius made that clear. He had the soldiers whipped and made it clear that the local population was Roman. They were among their own people, here to liberate them from a foreign ruler, and so they would buy their food, just like they would if they were at home. Belisarius was clearly thinking about hearts and minds. He was very aware of the divisions between Vandal and Roman African, and very aware that he had an advantage in the PR department but he was also aware that that advantage could be lost very easily if his men abused the populace or acted like just another conquering force. Belisarius' strategy was borne out when he sent a detachment to the nearest settlement, a town called Selectus, about a day's ride to the north. These men entered the town alongside country folk, bringing in their produce. The town had no wall, Gaiseric had seen to that, and the soldiers encountered no resistance when they made themselves known to the residents. They announced the army's arrival and received enthusiastic promises of cooperation from the priest and other leading men, along with the keys to the public buildings. This was all going better than could have been expected. Higher-level officials made themselves known as well. The man in charge of the official communications, I guess we call him the postmaster, though that seems a little bit incorrect, deserted his post and turned over all the horses in his care to the Romans. Belisarius buttonholed one of the messengers who had worked for this man and gave him a letter to be distributed to all of the local Vandal magistrates. This was no war of conquest or aggression, the letter said, but a war of liberation. The Romans had not come to make war on the Vandals, only on the usurping King Gelimer. Peace and freedom could be had by any who abandoned their illegitimate king and joined with the Romans in overthrowing him. This letter, as reported by Procopius, was a bit light on the details of what exactly happened after that, but it didn't really matter anyway. The messenger decided he liked all of his body parts right where they were, and showed the letter to no one. When the main body of the army arrived at Selectus, they behaved themselves as well as Belisarius could have wished, and the town opened up to him like a flower. The market was made available, and he could concentrate on arranging his armies for the march to Carthage. You'll have to forgive me, but I do need to go into some detail about the deployment of Belisarius' troops, because it will be important. A hand-picked force of 300 cavalrymen were sent ahead to scout the road under the command of one John the Armenian, while on the left Belisarius placed his Hunnish cavalry to serve as a screen against any vandal attack coming from the west. Each of these stood away from the main body, at least two miles distant by the general's order. The right flank was protected by the sea as they moved north, and the fleet followed and kept in close contact with the army along the way. The campaign to win hearts and minds paid off all along the army's route, as each city greeted the Romans with open arms, Leptis, Hadramatum, and Grassa, in quick succession, day by day. Meanwhile, Gelimer was made aware of the Roman landing. He was at Hermione, a town in the interior whose exact location is disputed, probably engaged in some way with one of the Moorish petty kingdoms in the area. When he heard the news, Gelimer sent a message to his brother Amatus, who was in command in Carthage, and ordered him to kill Hilderic and the other prisoners. Once that was done, Amatus gathered his troops, and prepared for battle. 
Gallimer had a plan to catch Belisarius in a trap. Outside Carthage, the approach narrowed at a spot called Ad Decimum, which lay between some low hills and the bay on which lay Carthage's famous harbor. On the other side of the hills was a broad salt pan, which offered no water or fodder whatsoever. Gelimer hoped to time his arrival with Amatus's muster and catch Belisarius in that narrow passage. Ad decimum, by the way, means at the tenth, which would suggest it was at the tenth mile marker, so of course it was at the seventh. Gelimer had brought up his army quickly and was shadowing the Romans at some distance, successfully evading detection until they arrived at Grassa. To add to the Romans' trouble, Gelimer detached a force of 2,000 troops under his nephew Gibamundus to cross the salt pans and hills and take the Romans in their flank at the crucial moment. The Romans became aware of their vandal shadow when they reached Grassa, and the scouting parties encountered each other. There was a brief exchange of blows, and each side retired to report to their main group. This news made the Roman soldiers nervous, and they became even more so as they lost contact with their naval force. They had to cross the foot of Cape Bon, while the fleet, of course, was obligated to sail around it. Belisarius gave orders that his navy was not to attempt to force the Carthaginian harbor, but rather stand off some distance and wait for his signal. All indications are that the Vandal army had remained entirely a cavalry force, as we heard in the confrontation with Cavayon, and were used to close combat with sword, spear, and shield. The size of the force Gelimer commanded is by necessity less certain than the Roman size. Procopius offers, get this, 80,000, which would make Belisarius's generally jovial approach to the whole enterprise seem wildly irresponsible. Historians of Procopius's bent, though, are prone to inflating the size of enemy armies in order to emphasize their hero's achievements. Most modern historians significantly downgrade the Vandal number. Their estimates fall between 20 and 40,000, with most estimates under 30,000. Even so, Belisarius's 15,000 were outnumbered, possibly by as much as 2 to 1. His confidence, though, was mostly based on the friendliness of the Roman population and on the better, more standardized training and discipline of his Roman soldiers. You may have noticed that Gallimer's plan was effectively a three-pronged attack and would depend very much on timing and on catching the Romans by surprise. And, if you've been listening to history podcasts for a while, you will also have noticed that these things very rarely go as planned. In this case, the combination of poor timing and Belisarius's preparation sank Gallimer's plan from the get-go. Amatus scrambled to get into position at Decimum and arrived too early. Procopius estimated he jumped the gun by about a quarter of a day. On top of that, in his haste, he set his muster point at the destination rather than gathering his men outside the city and marching en masse. So significantly fewer men were immediately available than would normally have been. Some were in position, but the rest were strung out along the road in a groups of 20 or 30. To put a more charitable gloss on this situation, historian J.B. Burry suggested that Amatus had actually come ahead with a few men to survey the ground, and was just unlucky enough to run into John and his 300 Bussolarii. Without hesitation, the Roman cavalry attacked. The Vandals put up what resistance they could, with Amatus killing 12 before he himself fell. Once their commander was killed, the Vandals broke and fled back towards Carthage. The men coming up the road turned tail at the sight of their fleeing compatriots. John and his force did exactly what cavalry are good at and ran down the routing soldiers. Thanks to the high proportion of cavalry in the Vandal army, a relatively large number of them made it back inside the walls of Carthage. But nonetheless, Procopius could write that there was so great a slaughter of Vandals in the course of the Seventy Stadia that those who beheld it would have supposed that it was the work of an enemy 20,000 strong. A stadion, by the way, is an eighth of a Roman mile, 
So 70 stadia would be about 8 miles or 13 kilometers. At the same time, Gibbamundus's 2000 crossed the salt flats and met the Hun forces that Belisarius had set as a flanking guard. In this case, the reputation of the Huns preceded them, and the Vandals put up only token resistance before routing and being killed or scattered entirely. Knowing nothing of either of these two engagements, Belisarius pitched camp about half a day's distance from Decimum, fully fortified as was standard operating procedure. There he decided to divide his forces. He left the infantry, along with his wife, and baggage in camp, and took the cavalry ahead to skirmish with the Vandals and gauge their strength. He sent Federate troops ahead where they found the remnants of the engagement between John and Amatus. Before they had time to process the find, the main Vandal force appeared in the distance. Gelimer's force chased off the Federate troops and seemed ready to make the Romans' earlier successes irrelevant. The turning of the tide came, according to Procopius, when Gelimer found the body of his brother on the field. Quote, I am unable to say what happened to Gelimer, that having victory in his hands he willingly gave it up to the enemy, unless one ought to also refer foolish actions to God. For if he had made pursuit immediately, I do not think even Belisarius could have withstood him. Or, if he had ridden straight to Carthage, he would have easily killed John, the Armenians' men, who were wandering about the plain stripping the dead. Instead, he descended from the hill at a walk, and when he reached the level ground and saw the corpse of his brother, he turned to lamentations and caring for his burial, and so he blunted the edge of his opportunity, an opportunity which he was not able to grasp again. Belisarius rallied and rebuked the men who had fled, and after hearing what had happened, set off immediately with his full force of cavalry towards Gelimer's position. The Vandals had already lost their cohesion, and were driven off by the reinforced Roman cavalry charge. Fighting and pursuit continued until nightfall, and by the end most of the Vandals were either dead or fled westward toward Numidia, Gelimer himself having escaped with them. The battle seems to have been barely a battle at all. When the crunch time came, when main force met main force, Procopius barely describes it. The Vandals, having lost their edge through long years of wealth and relatively unchallenging fights with the Moors, were broken immediately when the Roman rubber met the road. It's hard to even credit the victory to Belisarius's tactical acumen. Procopius wonders that the two prelude encounters with John's scouts and the Huns' flanking guards came out so neatly in the Romans' favor, and credits this either to the workings of divine guidance or superhuman foresight on the part of his general. But really, though, Procopius is only revealing his civilian education and lack of real military experience, since under the circumstances that arrangement of outriders was utterly standard. The Romans reunited with John's force and the Huns, and spent the night in Decimum, preparing to approach Carthage the next day. Belisarius, though outwardly confident, had no way of knowing what kind of reception awaited him inside the walls, and conferred with each of his commanders to ensure discipline would be maintained. But he needn't have worried. The Carthaginians threw open the gates and welcomed the Romans as liberators, just as Belisarius had predicted. The real genius of the general's campaign lay in his relationship with the locals, presenting the invasion as a war of liberation rather than conquest. Here, too, we must admit that much of the work had already been done for him by his adversary. The Vandal experiment had failed. Imposing an outside elite on the established culture left the kingdom vulnerable. It's a little surprising, actually, that in over 70 years, there had been so little assimilation. Whatever incentives had been offered for conversion to Arianism, however many Roman citizens may have been tempted by them, or who had sought the, to advance themselves by allying with the occupiers, it was not enough to dull the resentments of the native population. This, I think, more than any of the outraged writing by 
figures such as Victor of Vita or other Catholic polemicists, speaks to the ultimate brutality and insensitivity of the Vandal state. Geyseric had been a brilliant leader, and deserved his reputation as a statesman and warrior, but the state he set up was still based on the barbarian image of kings as war leaders, and not much more, and he was let down badly by his succession plan, and by the successors that his plan threw up. For the successor kingdoms of the Western Empire to succeed, new models would need to be developed. There is still more to say about the Vandal War. Gelimer, for example, is not yet dead. And the wide and fair garden path down which Belisarius had been traipsing may turn out to have a few thorns after all. But we'll leave that mopping up and the new realities for North Africa for next time. This time, then, all that's left is to thank you all for listening and for rating, reviewing, and leaving comments on the episodes on Facebook or Instagram or Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And as always, special gratitude to monthly contributors Paul, Scott, Jesse, Brendan, Alex, Dusty, and John. Have a lovely time, all. Until next time, take care. Mm-hmm.